Here we are. Um, if you don't know me, I sit Drew, and this is RUF Reform University Fellowship. Uh, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that serves New Mexico State University. Um, let me just say a few things about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for those who ate deep fried turkey last Thursday, and those who chose to turkey instead. They too can coexist. For the student whose major is cake this time of year, and the student who's majored in extreme difficulty and painstaking labor. Both of you are welcome here. And RUF exists for those who think that Jesus isn't real, and those who think that Jesus is the real deal. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. I hope that we get to know you and you get to know us. Meaning, if you've been to RUF before, maybe take an effort, not now afterwards to kind of get to know some folks. And if this is your first time here, uh, please just kind of take an, make an effort to get to know people near you. Um, the other thing I'm already going to plug, after this, you're all invited to my house, uh, which is like International Lights in so many ways. Um, we have a patio, which we won't use, just like International Lights right now. Um, I can I, I can put on some Turkish techno at about 11.30 to, to drive you out of my house if you need to be. <laughs> um, but really, uh, it's actually, the, the, the deal is that it's free food and free drink, which is actually a sweeter deal than International Delights, which makes it a little bit more delightful, I'm, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> so, feeling you, IDs. Um, but, so one time a year, it's kind of a tradition in RUF that at the end of the semester, we have post-large group fun at our house. So come on over. Um, and if we're loud enough, we'll wake up some of the kids, which is always good. Um, score. Okay. Uh, is the sign-up? I don't even know if we can do it. Uh, so if you haven't signed up for this, uh, you want to sign up, you're welcome to put your email down and get some details uh, about RUF. Get better informed, know what's going on. The other way to do that is to join the Facebook group, NMSURUF. Um, there's been some amazing wall posts this semester. I don't know if you guys have seen these. If you haven't, maybe you're not on an MSU or you have a Facebook group, and maybe it's time to get on. Okay? <laughs> Join that party. Okay? You're just depriving yourself and no one else. Okay. Uh, finally, well, two things. Uh, ministry team, uh, if you look at the bulletin, I've got a little write-up there about open call to ministry team. I've said this a bunch of times like the last couple weeks, so I'm really going to spare us. If you want to learn how to serve Jesus, if you want to, if you believe in Jesus and you want to serve the campus, um, this is a good thing to think about. Come talk to me, and we can go from there. Uh, I would encourage you to do that for sure. And finally, the Christmas party this Friday night. Okay, so we really already have racked our brains. We said, what is NMSU missing? What is it missing? Okay, it's getting colder. The, the, the trees are dying. And we thought, we really were missing a semi-formal. Yeah, that's what we're missing. Semi-formal, okay? Um, you know, so if you'd like to, you could take it up a notch in the clothing department, okay? Take it up a notch. But where is Jordan Benegas? Oh, there's a joke just for him. Uh, it's probably the basketball game. I'm going to say it anyway. This is probably unfair. I said, except if you're Jordan Venegas, who does not need to take it up a notch for the Christmas party. He's already semi-formal. <laughs> so, hopefully he'll listen to that tape, so it'll be to, his, to him as well. Okay. Um, also, 
uh, we're asking you to bring a, a dessert and a white elephant gift that's $5 or less. By the way, white elephant has like 800 names. Yankee, Hotel Foxtrot, Swap. Uh, like... <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, I don't know what else it's called. Uh, look, I'm getting a better gift than you game. Um, Nasty Christmas. Nasty Christmas. Uh, what is it? Uh, Bad Santa, whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so everyone knows this is different regions of the country, different regions of New Mexico probably call it different things. Here we are, okay? We call it fun. Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> call it fun. It's a fun activity, okay? Everyone, it's exciting. It's, it's, again, not necessarily free, but fun. Okay, now look, some of you are like, bah humbug, I don't want to spend 5 to $10, and I'm not dressing up, Sid. You can't make me. And you know what I'm saying? Come come anyway, okay? <laughs> come as you are. You don't have to dress up. If you want to put a tacky sweater on, that's your choice, okay? Um, just Let's just all know it's ironic. But if you want to come and bring nothing, that's totally fine. Um, it's a Christmas party after all, the spirit of Christmas. Okay, so we're not, we'll promise not to Ebenezer Scrooge you. Okay, so here we are. Okay, enough of the bad Christmas jokes. Let's move on, shall we? Okay. <laughs> Okay, I got up here to do stand-up. I'm up here to talk about the Bible, uh, thankfully for all of us. So, amen. <laughs> can I get a testify? <laughs> all right, now the spirit's moving. Okay. Um, so, this semester in large group, what we're doing here is we're looking at the story behind two people, Jonah and Elijah. First, we looked at Jonah's story in the book of Jonah, and we're finishing up the second story of uh, Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. Now, we just did a fraction of that story, chapters 18 and 19, but nonetheless, um, it's a good foretaste for you to dive in this winter break and just eat up 1 Kings. Okay? So, um, but by now, I hope you've realized that Jonah and Elijah aren't the center of our study. God is the center of our study. That's why I've called the study our semester Tracing the Heart of God. Writer Raymond Dillard puts it well. He says, The stories like Jonah and Elijah do portray principles of wisdom about life. But the purpose of the Bible is far more to reveal God to us, to show us what he's like and what he's done. The Bible's not me-centered, it's God-centered. Okay? That's a helpful reminder um, to all of us as we kind of dive into this. But let me just add that reading the Bible helps us to read life, so to speak. Okay? What does that mean? That means that life is God-centered just like the Bible, or rather maybe the Bible is written this way because life is this way. Okay? So just so you kind of are on the same track with us, it's a helpful reminder to focus our attention on God, um, even as we look at Elijah and his life. So we're going to jump back into the story of Elijah. We took a little bit of break. Um, we had a break to talk about death and Jesus two weeks ago, and then we had a break to talk about Nothing and eat Thanksgiving. Okay, so um, now we're coming back into this in chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. Okay? Um, but I want you to kind of remember where we were. So we started in chapter 18, and we had this whole, like, two mountaintop spiritual high experiences. I mean, literally, fire rained down from heaven. Literally, a three-year drought was ended with a flood. Okay? From, from above. And Elijah was orchestrating the whole thing in terms of he set up the contest, he prayed earnestly, and these things happened. And tonight we're going to look at another moment right after those moments in Elijah's life. This isn't a mountaintop spiritual high moment, this is a valley low spiritual moment. This is a moment 
like Jonah, where, remember when Jonah had the conversion of all of Nineveh, and then he decided to go pout about a plant in a, in a makeshift lean-to, okay? Now we have Elijah, who had this incredible moment of, like, fire from heaven, literally, um, flooding in the name of Jesus, and all of a sudden, he's going to go hide in a cave and, and be depressed in the wilderness, okay? That's kind of what's going on, and that's the versatility of what we're talking about. Um, with those things in mind, with those contrasts in mind, as we move into the valley, would you open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19? Or if you have a green sheet, you can open up to the inside or right-hand side, and there's the text for you. Um, so I'm actually going to read a little bit ahead. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, as well as 9 through 18, so it's going to feel really long, maybe. Uh, but you need to know the context, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Um, verses 1 through 8. So we're going to look at literally verses 1 through 18. So if you'd stand for the reading of Scripture, it's chapters 19, verses 1 through 18. And just follow along. Uh, you just hear me for the first eight verses if you don't have a Bible, and then we'll talk about the rest of them. We're really not going to spend a lot of time in the first eight verses. Okay, we're reading from the English Standard Version translation. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, a.k.a. your dad. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, Is it not enough? Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went into the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Okay, now we're into verses 9 through 18. There he, that is, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of, over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. 
And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Friends, the heavens and the earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, this is a really complicated passage, um, but it's a really beautiful passage. It's an important passage for us to, to, to chew on a little bit tonight. And I pray that you would move our hearts, uh, that you would be in this room, that your spirit would fill us, that this wouldn't just be a diversion, but this would be the center stage. Uh, not this moment, but you, Jesus. You, Jesus, the way that you are, the way that what you've done and what you are doing and what you will do, that that would take center stage in our lives and in our hearts, and that we would change as people, even from this moment forward. I pray that your word would bring that to bear, and that we'd hear the low whisper, the voice of the low whisper, the sound of the low whisper, amidst all of the things going on in our lives. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Can be seated. Thanks. So, um, there's a song that I really enjoy called Criticism is Inspiration. It's by a guy named David Bazan. And he makes a very true point that I think all of us can really relate to. He says, we're all looking for answers. We're all looking for answers. He puts this truth bluntly in three ways. And he shows three different places that this guy in the song, this you that David's addressing, is looking for answers. Okay? First, Bazan tells him, I saw in your bedroom... The drawers had been emptied, looking for answers, but you won't admit it now. Okay? So he's, he's looked in his bedroom, he's seen the drawers have been emptied, looking for answers, but you won't admit it now. The guy's looking for answers in the way that he clutches for and then discards his stuff. But then Bazan gives a second way that he's looking for answers. You don't need a reason, that's what you tell me, but I still don't buy it. You drink yourself silly, night after night. The guy is looking for answers, for a reason to be, in the way he drinks to get drunk. And Bazan points out a third place, this guy, who's really any one of us, by the way, looks for answers. Then there's your girlfriend. She opens her legs and gives your life meaning. Is that what you love her for? Yes, I just did say that. Okay. Well, actually, I quoted it. But, <laughs> distinctions. Um, and I think it's honest. The guy's looking for meaning in sex. That's what that means. Okay. But then in a wonderfully surprising move, Bazan turns the microscope of scrutiny on himself. And he says this, It makes me feel so good to always tell you when you're wrong, the big man that I am, to always put you down. It makes me look so good to always put you in your place. I can write it in a song, but never say it to your face. That's a powerful lyric. And he's saying, look... I'm looking for answers, for meaning and for reason, to feel and to look good, and telling other people they're wrong. Not actually telling other people they're wrong, telling other people about how other people are wrong. I'm criticizing as inspiration. And he says, I can write it in a song, but never say it to your face. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves, just from the get-go, is where are we, where are you, and where am I, looking for answers? Are we like the songs, Anonymous Sky, looking for answers in the way we dress or what we have? Are we looking for a reason to live and getting high or getting drunk? Are we looking for meaning in the next hookup or conquest or embrace? 
And before you take offense, well, maybe it's too late, um, notice that the guy in the song denies he's looking for answers. He would probably scoff that he's looking in these places for meaning. But maybe our quest for something more is more subtle and takes the form of David Bazan. We criticize others. We look down our noses in judgment on the lost, the bad, and the dumb. And here's the point. The point is religious or irreligious, Christian or not Christian, we're all looking for answers. We're all looking for reasons to live. We're all looking for meaning in life. And we all, wherever we are spiritually in this room, are looking in the wrong places often, whether we choose to deny it or not. And so we come to our passage where Elijah is looking for answers. Okay, that's the connection. Elijah in chapter 18 of 1 Kings was on the right track, looking in the right places entirely with God. And then in chapter 19, just a few days later, just even maybe a day later, we see Elijah looking to the wrong things in the wrong places. In our passage, Elijah has left the mission field of Israel and fled to the wilderness. And this misguided quest leads Elijah to something, uh, to something of a spiritual depression. He's depressed. He's despondent. He's sad. And this is just what happens to all of us when we look for meaning in the wrong places in the course of time. That's how we start to feel. That's how we start to spiritually live. Yet, I noticed this, and this is what's beautiful about this passage. At the climax of Elijah's flight, the climax of his despair, God shows up and Elijah and shows Elijah the desires of his heart the desires of Elijah's heart and God's heart for Elijah. Do we see that? He shows Elijah the desires of Elijah's heart and God's heart for Elijah. And that's so beautiful. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9-18, through 18, we see something incredibly profound and encouraging in the midst of moments that are just incredibly discouraging. And I want you to, I want you to hear that. And I want, as you hear that, to think about your life for a second, Okay? Maybe this song had nothing to do with you, and you thought, okay, I'm not into that stuff. That's not where I'm looking. I want you to think about the symptom for a second. Think about the ways in which we are struggling, the moments in which we struggle now, in the past, in the future, with spiritual frustration and depression. And I want you to hear this. God is at work through his son, Jesus Christ, even when things look least under a kingdom construction. God is at work through his son, Jesus Christ, even when things look least under kingdom construction. Therefore, trust in the small but powerful voice of God. I'm going to put it another way, and I think this is a a better way, a shorter way. Look for answers in Christ Jesus, because he's giving them in a small but powerful voice. So look for your answers in Jesus Christ, because he's giving them in a small but powerful voice. That's the whole passage. That's what it's about. Now, this passage is extremely complicated in the way that it unravels this, this truth. You could really split the passage into two parts, verses 9 and 12 through 12, and then verses 13 through 18. Each half is sort of parallel with each other. You notice this, you notice that, like, you know, maybe somebody thought it was a typo. God asks the exact same question, and Elijah gives the exact same answer. Do you see that? And then you have this sort of a very similar God revelation moment. Now they're slightly shifted, slightly different, but they're meant to be read together. And so as we approach 
the scripture, we're going to take this idea in mind. There's thing, this parallelism, this alternating structure of parallels that's very clear in the text. And we're going to look first at God's question and Elijah's answer in verses 9 through 10 and then 13 through 14. And I'm calling this God's invitation to be real. Okay? That's what's going on there. God is inviting Elijah and inviting all of us to be real. Second, we're going to look at God's two revelations to Elijah in verses 11 and 12 and then verses 15 through 18. And I'm calling this God's answer is in his subtle word. God's answer is in his subtle word. So to summarize, God's invitation to be real, verses 9 through 10, 13 through 14, God's answer is in his subtle word, verses 11 through 12, 15 through 18. Okay? So let's begin as much as we can begin at the beginning of the passage, in verse 9, okay? So God's invitation to be real. And there's a reason I read verses 1 through 8. The reason I read verses 1 through 8 is because you can't understand verses 9 through 18 without them, Okay? Like, I was going to preach on that a couple weeks ago, things happened, um, and so we didn't talk about it. So I'm going to give you, like, the short version of it that's a summary. What's going on in verses 1 through 8? I mean, there are angels, there's jars, there's, there's bread, what the heck, okay? He's out in the wilderness, what's, what's Mount Horeb? Um, here's basically what you need to know. We need to know why Elijah went from running before King Ahab's chariot in triumph. That's where we left off. And all of a sudden, Elijah's cowering in a cave afraid and hiding on some mountain in the wilderness. What happened? What happened? And we see it in verses 1 through 8. So, and maybe you can relate to this. Elijah was sure that things would change. He did this two great miracles. Fire rained down from heaven. A flood happened that had not happened. A drop of water had not licked the earth for three years. And then all of a sudden, flood cascaded. Water cascaded all over the earth. Okay? And he pictured that everything would change. That King Ahab would get up and start running after God. But what does he do instead? He lays down between the sheets with Jezebel and blames Elijah for the whole ordeal. Okay? Then Elijah pictures in his mind Queen Jezebel getting humble and giving up her false foreign religion. What happens instead? She issues a death warrant for Elijah. Pretty discouraging stuff. Third, he expects, like, okay, maybe the monarchy doesn't get it. The people are going to rise up as one and return Israel to worshiping the true God. What happens? It's as if the fire and the rain never happens. <laughs> They're just stuck. It's as if the Israelites sigh and say, ah, so what if God exists? What difference does that make in my life? I've got exams to take, friends to influence, and holiday plans to make. So what? This non-change in the face of literal firepower and flash flooding drives Elijah to despair and drives him to the wilderness. There God meets Elijah with food and drink and direction to take his pain and his misery to Mount Horeb. By the way, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. Okay, it's another way of saying Mount Sinai. And note, notice this too, 40 days and 40 nights he journeys. Now, you guys are lucky. I have this whole huge elaborate explanation of 40 days and 40 nights, Mount Sinai, biblical parallels between Moses and Jesus, and then ultimately John the Baptist. But, you know, I was really ready to stock your cupboards full for that awkward Christmas conversation. When you're with your parents, you're like, what did you learn this semester? <laughs> Boom, done, okay? But 
You're lucky. I decided that we're just not going to dwell there. Okay? Another time, another place. Here's what the important point is. Where Elijah comes, Elijah comes to Mount Sinai, and he comes tired, worn out physically, worn out emotionally, worn out spiritually. That's where he is. And into all this tiredness, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah with a very loaded question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? We see this in verses 19 and 13. Obviously an important question. By the way, this is a very typical God question. He knows the answer. <laughs> okay? So, Adam, where are you hiding in Genesis 3? Oh, behind the bush. <laughs> okay, I already knew that. Okay? The question isn't the question, okay? He clearly sees what's on people's hearts and minds, so he knows why Elijah is there. The question is more than a fact fishing expedition. Okay, he's not just going after facts. With this question, God is giving Elijah a chance to come clean before him, to empty the conscience of his heart, to pray. That's what he's asking him into. This is a wonderful picture of prayer for all of us. I hope we can get this. God is inviting us, like Elijah, to come to him with everything that's on our heart. God knows that everything in our heart is not all good but probably it's not all bad either. And he's saying, please, I want to go through the contents of your heart with you. It's as if God says, don't let your knowledge of my all-encompassing knowledge, don't let your knowledge about my omniscience prevent you from talking, getting in the way of us having to sit down and talking together. There's something good and beautiful and true about sharing what's on your heart and your mind with God. Look, you're not informing him of anything. We get that. But by putting your feelings and your thoughts into words, you might just be informing yourself about something. Something about you, and something about me, and something about God. So sometimes prayer is more than just information session. Oftentimes it is. And this is really my encouragement, and really God's encouragement, when you're feeling worn out spiritually, emotionally, and physically, go to God in prayer. Look for answers in the presence of God through prayer. That's the encouragement of this passage. And maybe you're not feeling that way now, but you will feel that way in the future. For every mountaintop high, there's a valley low. And so... Elijah comes to God with all that's on his heart. And we see this in verses 10 and 14. And he has a lot. And not surprisingly, it's a mixed bag of good and bad. Okay? God uses both the right parts and the wrong parts of Elijah and his heart to challenge us in a relationship with him. So he's basically saying, for instance, God says Elijah is right to be very jealous for the Lord. So he says, I'm very jealous for the Lord. And that's right. So in a way, Elijah is righteously depressed. If that makes any sense. He's righteously depressed. He's righteously dep- depressed about the way that God's people have disrespected God. Think about it. They've not been faithful to what they said they'd do. They've disregarded his worship. They've attacked the people who told them their faith and their worship kind of stunk. They killed them. And this begs the question for us. What do you and I get depressed about? What do we get depressed about? Is it about faith and worship in the church? This is for God's sake and his glory. My guess is our moments of depression are mostly for our sakes and mostly about blocked personal goals involving exercise, a study plan, or maybe friendships. 
And look, this passage is telling us those are good things, but they're not the best thing to get worried about. The best thing to get worried about is God's sake and his glory. But I also want you to understand this. Just being able to admit these things, just being able to stand up here or sit down there and be able to admit these things is super powerful. It's so powerful because it takes so much faith. It makes so much faith to say, we're not all put together. We're not okay. Because what it requires is that Jesus Christ actually did something 2,000 years ago on a cross. That he actually died for forgiveness. So we can actually live out of that forgiveness that he could forgive even our emotions. Even our emotions are forgivable. Because even our emotions are misdirected. And this forgiveness moves us to redirect our emotions from ourselves and to God. To look for answers, not inside, but outside. Yet Elijah is a man just like us, and his eyes often slip back to himself. He says, I, even I only, am left, and seek my life, and they seek my life to take it away. In the depths of his heart, Elijah thinks he's indispensable. He's irreplaceable. I, even I only, am left. I'm the only true believer in all of Israel. Okay? Okay? We find out later there's 7,000, kind of a miscalculation on Elijah's part. Um, But he thinks he's God's last and only hope to to fulfill God's mission on earth. Maybe in your more competent moments, you can relate to this. Sometimes I find myself falling into this incredible moment of I, only I, when I experience ministry success. That's what happens. In fact, I have a training twice a year where I go for a week, and they tell me over and over again, you are replaceable. You are replaceable. RUF tells me over and over again, you are replaceable. And it is sweet music, and it's true. Okay? Let me, let me just ask you a question to show you how replaceable I am. Okay? Who remembers the campus minister three years ago? Less than three years ago, two years ago, the previous RUF campus minister. Does anyone even know his name? Maybe like three or four of you. Five. Okay? So, I'm just saying, it's not even been three years yet. And I'm not saying it's because he didn't do a great job. I'm just saying because we're all replaceable. Okay? <laughs> I'm replaceable. In three years, I fully expect you guys, if I'm not here, to not remember my name. The thought is, this isn't fearful or strangely shaming. This isn't. It's freeing. And I'll tell you why it's freeing. Because at first, this whole I, even I, only thing feels really good. Yeah! I'm here, and without me, nothing works. But after a while, it feels so, so heavy. Like, such a burden. Like, I have to perform all the time, every time, no matter what. It has nothing to do with God. And so, I can come out of my cave and let go of my even I only mentality. And I can stand on the mountain before God and behold His glory and His revelation. And that's exactly what Elijah gets to do. That's exactly the invitation of verse 11 is to Elijah. Step out of your cave and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord reveals himself to Elijah and to us in a very carefully crafted way in verses 11 and 12. And you guys know the story maybe, or maybe you just heard it for the first time. Elijah hears a great and strong wind that breaks even the mountains. But the Lord is not in the wind. And then the Lord, and Elijah feels the earth beneath him, sees in a thunder's earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And third, Elijah sees an eruption of all-consuming fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And finally, Elijah perceives 
the faintest sound of a low whisper. Elijah wraps his face with a cloak in verse 13, and this shows us that there, there God was indeed there in the humble voice. So what does this mean? Okay, we maybe heard this before, maybe it's something new, and you think, why does God reveal himself in this way? It's carefully constructed, there's got to be some point, right? Through the wind and the earthquake and the fire, God is telling us he controls all of nature. He's not a piece of nature, he's above it and he's controlling it. That's what that whole thing's about. Yet through the small whispering voice, God is telling us where he is present. That is, God can use extraordinary acts of nature, that is miracles, but he's actually present in ordinary words like scripture. Okay, this is where I offend at least half of you. Just be prepared, <laughs> okay? Guard yourself. Sit up a little bit, maybe get your hands in front of your face. Okay. Um, you see, Elijah, like many of us, put his faith in the power of signs and miracles and wonders. That's where he looked for answers. That's where he found reason and meaning and purpose. But God is telling Elijah and us to look to the ordinary, the lowly, the routine, the humble, the everyday word of God. That's where he is. We misdirect our faith all the time, and I'm not trying to impose them in the scripture, this is what I think it's saying. We misdirect our faith all the time when we live from mountaintop high to mountaintop high, from summer camp experience extraordinaire to summer camp experience extraordinaire, from miracle to miracle. And really the point is, God isn't a feeling, good or bad. God isn't a feeling, good or bad. And serving him often looks like the way of quiet love, simple piety, and persuasive kindness, in the words of one commentator. Serving God often looks the way of quiet love, simple piety, and persuasive kindness. I'm going to put it another way. Another scholar says this, says it this way. It's Baal worship that works up orgasms. Biblical faith is content with the word of God. Did I say that? Yes and no, I quoted it. Okay. Okay. But, okay, so you've said some things, everyone's disoriented. Let me give you a story that helps clarify this for me. And I'm guessing that at some level this has happened to many of us in our lives. We've experienced something like this. As a junior in college, I was a resident advisor, okay? Somehow they convinced me it was a really incredible privilege that really didn't pay well to be a resident advisor for freshmen as a junior. And so I lived in a freshman hall. And I started a Bible study on this hall, and I got to know a couple of, of freshmen really well through this Bible study and living on their hall together. Um, and one of these freshmen was named Hans. And Hans had grown up a missionary kid and was talented at basically everything. Every musical instrument, every form of art, every form of academics, every form of athletics. Ridiculous. Um, one day I was hanging out in Hans's room, and he showed me this picture of his girlfriend, who was incredibly attractive. And he told me, I'm going to marry her. And I sort of shrugged off and said, sure, that's great. Awesome. But he said, no, 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 Sid, I'm going to marry her. I'm dead serious. And I was like, whoa, okay. Talk to me about that, Hans. How do you know you're going to marry this girl? And he told me a story. He had been on a bus on a missionary trip. He was traveling between two places. And he was praying and listening to music. And he began to pray about this girl he liked at the time, the girl in the, the picture. And sure enough, during a song by Dave Matthews Band, he felt the <laughs> Lord tell him that he would marry her. And they had started dating soon afterwards, and Han was confident marriage was the only matter of time. 
Several months later, Hans came to me in tears and told me that his girlfriend had broken up with him and was engaged to another guy. Soon, with his former girlfriend married to some other guy that she had met on some other missions trip, <laughs> Hans was crushed. Watch out for mission trips. <laughs> Hans was crushed. He was crushed. He was emotionally and spiritually devastated. And he ran from his responsibilities, and he ran into the arms of a pro baseball team called the Cubs and video games. And by the end of the semester, Hans had done so poorly in his classes that he failed out of school and lost his scholarship. And I never saw him again. So, really this story um, gets us back to our starting question. Where are we looking for answers? Where are we looking for answers? I'm asking this of a spiritually minded people like Hans. I'm not just asking this of everybody. I'm asking this especially of people who are spiritually minded. Where are we looking for answers? Are we looking to signs and miracles or to God's word? Are we looking to wonders or to Christ, the word of God made flesh? Are we looking to how we feel inside or what's real outside of us? What's real and really was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago? Look, I'm in no way discounting the miraculous. I believe in it. I believe in it. It happens even today. But you can't live the everyday Christian life with something that does not happen every day. It's impossible. That's the problem. And verses 11 and 12 of this passage, God seems to affirm that yes, He is in the sound of the low whisper, literally the voice of a thin silence. Literally in the Hebrew. The voice of a thin silence. In a way, he's in that, in a way that he is not in miraculous acts of nature. That's what the passage is saying. As hard as that is to hear. And as encouraging as wonders and spiritual highs can be, it's the word of God that changes us and sustains us in this life. That's what this passage is saying. And verses 15 through 18 just expand on this idea that the word of God is at work, and he's at work working out his plan in the world and inside of us. God controls history just like nature, we see in these verses. And he assures us that history will end in justice. God will defeat evil. He will do it in the short term through the Syrian king, Hazael, the future king of Israel, Jehu, and the soon-to-be prophet, Elisha. And the promise of God's word goes further, that in the long term, God will defeat evil once and for all in Jesus Christ. That has been promised, signed, sealed, and delivered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has conquered the sources of evil that is Satan and sin. Do you get that? That's as good as gold. That's as good as done. The battle has been won. The war is almost over. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what that verse is talking about. That's what we're learning. And in parallel to verse 12, verse 18 just keeps on the glory. God is present in the same way, the same unique way that he's in the still small voice in the hearts of believers. This unique way that he's in the 7,000 who still believed in Israel. The word of God assures us in Romans 11, our reading, that there will always be a church and that church will always be chosen by grace. Always be a church and always be chosen by grace. What Paul means here is best captured by Raymond Dillard again. The guy I quoted at the very beginning of our time together. I'm going to quote again. Ultimately, faithful Israel, and by faithful Israel he means the faithful people of God. Ultimately, Israel 
that was faithful was that without sin and had kept God's commands perfectly. And that faithful Israel would boil down to a remnant consisting not of 7,000 people, but of one man, Jesus Christ. What grace in this idea of remnants means is that it's not up to Elijah or Elisha or Moses or John the Baptist. It's certainly not up to us. None of us can perfectly keep faith. None of us can do that. From time to time, our knees bow and our lips kiss God's other than the Lord God. But Jesus Christ has fought the battle for us and even for Elijah. He lived the good life we couldn't and we wouldn't, and he died to give his good life in exchange for our kind of bad, mostly bad, somewhat good life. That's grace. And Jesus is what makes it so that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, shall not prevail against me, shall not prevail against all of us together. That is the church. That's the promise of grace. And that's the promise of God showing up in the still small world, a still small word, excuse me, and in his people. Always, 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 no matter what it looks like, God's there, working through his word. Allow me to conclude our time together by reading a prayer. It's called Valley of Vision. It's a title poem of a wonderful book by the same name, Valley of Vision. It captures this idea of what it means for God to meet us in every place, even the low places. And no matter how we feel, no matter how things look, the word of God is silently working in this world and silently working in us. And I think this poem, this prayer, catches it. So would you pray this prayer with me? We're going to bow our heads and I'm going to pray as a prayer. And then we're going to be done. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way up is the way down, that the way to be, to, to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. We pray these things in your Son's name, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.